Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.L. Levy. And that's at A.L. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Jack Gardiner, who is a musician, guitarist, originally from Liverpool, UK. He's first started playing professionally, playing and teaching, actually, at around the age of 15, playing with popular rap and R&B artists and live on BBC Radio 1 sometimes gigging six to seven times per week from his own albums to guest appearances and online courses. Jack is actually one of the rising stars in the guitar world and listening to his material will show you exactly why you should also check out his YouTube channel. Jack Gardiner. Welcome to the riff hard podcast. Yo, thank you for having me. Ayal and John. It's good to see you guys. It's good to see you, Jack. It's a pleasure. So I noticed that you put out a masterclass just like a couple of days ago. Ah, yes, with JTC. Yeah, this one, it's a, it's kind of a big one. It's um, all about modern fusion improvisation. It's like volume one, if you like, and this one's all all about fretboard visualization and all those kind of boring things. To be honest, <laughs> but, <laughs> do you think they're boring? I mean, for me, visualization is probably the most interesting thing when it comes to how. You know, a guitarist views the intre- instrument. I always find it fascinating how we all find these different ways to navigate the fretboard. So it's a massive part of my playing. I, I studied with Tom Quayle, if you guys are familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Of course. He's a monster player. Um, he's actually by you, I think, up in Leeds, isn't he, John? I think he lives about four miles away from my house, and I still haven't met him. <laughs> you, you need to fix that. He's. Uh... I've tried. I've tried. Yeah, you should. You should introduce them. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually. I speak to Tom online, but I just oh, haven't okay. physically met him. Like, as a, you know, <laughs> that human thing that we haven't done in the last year. True, there has <laughs> been kind of a thing in the way, hasn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, he's a phenomenal guitar player. Like, uh, I'm actually kind of scared of watching him play in front of me. He's one of those kinds of players, you know, where he actually makes you feel severely insignificant. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that feeling from day one. But his, his kind of like visualization, for me, it was, you know, I'd had guitar lessons in high school, I guess, senior school in the UK. And they were, they were good, don't get me wrong. But, you know, when you go to one guy and there's like a light bulb moment in that first lesson where you kind of go, what have I been doing before all of this? Like, it almost felt like he embarrassed me, but at the same time, he gave me all of the tools to kind of, go on my own path from there you know it was that literally that very first lesson changed embarrassed or humbled humbled maybe is a better word to say he he, to 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 explain how he basically said to me jack play me an a minor seven chord and i did the typical thing where you know you 
play one chord and you think I've got this. He was like, play me another <laughs> one. So here's number two. And it was like, there we go. That's that one. I know all of my eight minor sevens. And then it was play me another one. And I just froze, you know, and the, the visualization kind of is just like, <laughs> uh, maybe I've got one more in there, you know? And it was that moment where he was kind of like, look, that's not good enough. You need to kind of understand how to construct these. It's more than just shapes. It's more than just, you know, learning, I guess, like copying other guitarists and thinking that that's it. You've got to kind of develop your own way of navigating this fretboard. And I'd done like the three note per string thing and caged and all that kind of stuff. But there's an extra layer of depth to it when you do it the way which Tom Quayle taught me, which was like the whole interval-based way. I think me and me and John have spoken about this maybe before when we were in Germany, was it, John? And it's I think like so, yeah. The idea that you see like root notes everywhere across the fretboard and you relate it directly back to that rather than relying on like a shape, you know, in terms of like fingerings and muscle memory and things like this. It's just like an extra layer, I guess, of how you have to think about the fretboard. But yeah, this this whole masterclass that goes a long story short, that's all about this, how I've adapted it. So I do it slightly different from Tom. Tom's in fourths tunings. So for him, this interval-based way is so symmetrical. I mean, if he places, you know, his first finger on any given fret, he knows that a perfect fifth is going to be two frets above on the adjacent string, and that will not change, even if he goes to, say, like, the the B uh, the G string to what will be his C string, we have to compensate for that if we were in standard tuning, you know. So there's this kind <laughs> of I've had to kind of adapt it into um, standard tuning and using the likes of caged and three note per string, but really it's about like going a bit more in depth. Like I say, using this kind of interval function rather than relying on just a shape, shall we say? Sounds like at the end of the day you reduce it down to its simplest form, it sounds to me like it's a way of going from a sound that you've got in your head straight to whatever shape you're going to play or whatever chord you're going to construct without having to think about it because you already know where everything is in relation to everything else wherever you're at on the fretboard. Totally. And I think you, you nailed it there, yeah. Like when, when we describe to someone, you know, it's a minor third that tells you what the sound is. Whereas if you just go to someone, oh, it's the note A to C, there's an extra level there. You have to work out that interval, you know? And I think like this kind of eliminates that. You are thinking solely of like the interval function. So that's obviously a visual shape, but it's also, it's giving you, you know, like, or it should give you like an oral kind of perspective of what that should sound like before you even play it, you know? So a fifth is always, a perfect fifth is always going to sound the same, isn't it? But if you can visualize that as well, that's kind of like an added layer of depth rather than just thinking, oh, it's this finger to this finger or it's this note to this note. You know, you've got to, to do an extra bit of thinking if you say A to E it might not quickly go in your head, oh, that's a perfect fifth. Whereas if we just describe it as a perfect fifth, there we go, we've got that. And it translates so long as you know the root note, you know. I think that guitar players miss that step a lot. Like, obviously, going back to when I was in school with classical instruments, interval training is a huge part of the learning cycle. And I remember doing it, you know, and struggling quite a lot with it <laughs> at first. I did it all the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you grew up yeah. in that kind of household, didn't you as well, Al? <laughs> Not like that. I did. I imposed it on myself. Okay. I would do, you know, the Berkeley sight singing ear training. Yes. But then 
I would take those exercises like exactly that they made you do for voice. And then I would just practice them on guitar. And then I would get these programs that now are probably normal, but in 2001, they were kind of hard to find that, you know, we'll play you random intervals and then you're taking a test all the time. But then I would translate that over to guitar and it helped tremendously. But what I was going to say was it reminds me kind of what you're saying of one of the big things that they teach people about how to improvise well is to be able to sing the part that you're going to play while you're singing it, you know, play it and sing it at the same time. You see that a lot with bass players on, I've done it. If you go on YouTube, there's a lot of jazz guys on bass. Yeah. Yes. That sing along while they're doing it. And it's pretty wild to watch. Yeah. Well, it's weird. I'm really weird about singing, but when I decided to actually do what the instructors were saying with that, my improvisation suddenly got way, way better. And without thinking about what notes you're playing or what chord you're outlining or any of that kind of shit, it's just something about the ear, brain, finger connection just worked a lot better. And so it sounds to me like that's kind of essentially what it is that you're trying to create, like a, a way to just hear this stuff um, and bypass conscious thought about it. You've absolutely nailed it, man. Yeah. It's getting away from, I always find that with shapes, they dictate what you play rather than doing it this way, whereby we should be more free and in control of what the sounds we want access to are. You know, like you nailed it when you said about the singing thing. I mean, I cannot pitch for shit. If you, if you heard me try to sing, it would be the most embarrassing thing. But I always encourage that with pupils and I do it, you know, privately to just try to, to guide my melodies like those bass players do, as you say, John, on YouTube. Like, I think at the end of the day, what, regardless of style of music or anything like that, if we want to play what we hear in our head, then we have to vocalise it, don't we? You know, I think it's really difficult for you to just make music if all you are doing is relying on muscle memory and fingerings and things like this. I think if you can take it that extra step further and use your ear and use this kind of intervallic way of describing things, then... It's just like, it's an easier way of understanding what you want to achieve, isn't it? You know, maybe I'm chatting auto shit there, but <laughs> I think... I also find that approach is really good for building chords. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously if you can hear the intervals, then you can, like, you can make out the chords a lot mm -hmm. better that you want to hear. Like, you know, talking about A minor sevens earlier, <laughs> like, I can hear what that sounds like in my head. Same with an A minor nine, you know, because I relate it to my past experiences, but then being able to actually work that out again, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Yes. I mean, as well, like, it, it's one of those things, um, you know, you talk about that and that recognition, like, if you say, what does a seventh sound like in your head, you should be able to recall that if you've done the whole ear training thing. So if you learn, like, three note per string, for example, you have to learn seven positions of every scale right so say like you took like a, a c major scale when people do the three note per string thing they start like you know from each degree of the scale and then they eventually compound it into these seven ideas spread across the fretboard now if you were to do that for every mode that's seven times seven then if you were to do that for all of the melodic minor modes, that's another seven times seven. All of the harmonic minor modes, that's seven times seven. Whereas if you do it like the interval way, say you want to learn visually what a major second looks like, then a major second interval is in 
the Ionian scale, so the major scale. It's in the Dorian scale. It's in the Lydian scale. It's in Mixolydian. It's in Aeolian. You know, so there's like five scales already where if you've learned that visualization of, okay, that's where a major second interval looks like, you've covered five scales already. You've not necessarily had to learn five shapes or uh, seven shapes does this make sense it's more like they they yeah. translate so if, if i view things in terms of formulas then so if it's the major scale for example i am literally just thinking one two three four five six seven if i wanted to convert that to say the mixolydian scale all i do is think okay flat seven yeah and if i've got this visual representation then all i have to do is go okay well the flat seven is just one half step below semitone yeah exactly yeah one thing I've noticed, though, about the three note per string scales in all positions method is that a lot of people don't use it in order to learn a sound or to learn a color. They're using it as a basically as a physical workout, which I think, you know, there's a there's something to be said for that. But you don't need to make it that complicated if what you're training to do is just get like physical facility. And so I think that when you start doing that math that you just described, that starts to overwhelm the shit out of people. And then they end up either not, not going as into it as they should because they're scared or they'll resort to sticking to the same thing over and over and over again. Like I sit down, I practice, I play my major scales in every single position. That's what I do for 25 minutes every day at this point in my practice. And they don't tend to progress past that because it seems too complicated. There's just some sort of a mental block. And so I think, yeah, obviously we know people that have done three note per strings and become amazing, but they're a kind of an exception. Like a lot of people who have come on the podcast are definitely the exception. More often than not, I see that method getting in the way of people progressing because it gets intimidating as shit once they start to play out all that math and realize if I do it this way, I'm going to have to spend two hours a day or more on scales to just do everything. They're just memorizing shapes. That's kind yeah. of like, as opposed to with the interval method, like Jack's saying, it's like, like, for example, like I hardly ever play in the major scale because to me, it just sounds like a cheese fest. <laughs> but I know the... And not the good kind of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> but as Jack said, you know, I know that that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I can, I can, you know, I, if I want to create that sort of color... I know how to do it. It's just that I've never successfully really written anything with that color in mind. And I, yeah. And like, cause I tune my guitar so weird now, visually I couldn't do the three note per string scale. So I've just found that learning the interval names and trying to find out what they sound like in relation to other intervals in the scale has been way more useful for even a songwriter, not just about improvisation, but just in general. Like, you know, say you're just, uh, you know, it's Jack, say you were playing in like a one particular scale, you know that if you wanted to add the blues note in that has that particular sound to it and you can hear that, right? Yeah. And that's way more useful to you than just playing 49 positions of... <laughs> yes. It, it's bridging the gap between the ear and the instrument, which at the end of the day, the instrument is the thing that's, that holds us back, isn't it? You know, that's the thing which we're yep. trying to tame. If we've got the ideas in the ear 
then yeah, it's it, we need an e- the easiest way to translate that. And for me, three note per string is more of a technical exercise. I think that's what Al was like leaning on to there. Like it becomes more of a technique practice tool which is fine yeah of course if that's what you're using it for yep i always encourage people to learn it as well because the more options the better but if you could use like three note per string and identify the intervals within that then that will add like another layer you know to it like there's an actual musical use shall we say of that then i mean the, the perfect example i'm sure you guys will have seen this and I, I definitely was was this player like you learn your pentatonic scales and like you know you can improvise a little bit with them and it, it all feels nice and then you hear someone lends three note per string and all of a sudden all the musicality like disappears it becomes like it starts to sound like a scale exercise whereas it within the pentatonic there's still elements of music in there just with the nature of like the phrasing that you would explore with that it's not this kind of let's blast up as quick as we can through this shape the, the pentatonic doesn't really facilitate that with it with it being like two notes per string and things like this it's bizarre i always find it really interesting to see a player who's maybe into like blues and stuff like this and they learn this like really lovely phrase and that can translate into other styles you show them three note per string and all of a sudden that's just gone. It, they become like... I've seen the opposite too, though. I think it depends on what your roots are. A lot of players identify more with pentatonic type sounds, like I guess because they grew up with that kind of with that kind of stuff. And so that is the basis of where they're coming from as musicians. So it feels more natural. But for someone like me, I come from the classical world. Pentatonic is not at all how I think. It's kind of foreign to me. So I learned, uh, I actually, I think more in, ter- in harmonic minor. That's more my natural mode. Like I find the most musicality in some sort of altered version of that. And so then when I went to go do pentatonics, that's when it kind of turned into what you're talking about, which is just mechanical, non-musical shit. It's weird, but I know exactly what you're saying. But what I think it is more is someone leaving their comfort zone of where they're feeling things and not having this new thing be part of who they are yet. And so all they do have is mechanics. They don't have, they haven't added soul or musicality into it yet because they don't understand. They're not there yet, I think. I think that's what you're describing. Yeah. In fact, you, you nailed it there, man. Yeah, you, we're all a product of our environment in that sense, aren't we? Like our musicality comes from what we were based around or what we listened to initially, I think. Like I can totally see that. I can imagine with harmonic minor because that's still a sound I struggle with. <laughs> like that must be totally alien to get rid of those two notes to make it that pentatonic scale. It's all about, I guess, like the language that you absorb, isn't it? Yep. It kind of brings me on to a point that like, for me, I always try to describe this to to all of like pupils and you know people who are looking to get into improvisation like it's all language music is language at the end of the day like i mean an example of that for me is i never spoke spanish or i never studied spanish i should say in school but i had two spanish ex-girlfriends and within like the five years or so of being around those two i could then understand 
what they were saying and I could have basic conversations without ever, you know, like studying the form of sentences or things like this in school. Mm-hmm. That was all the, and I think like if I was to then go and study it, I'm sure I could speak much better and things like that. But really, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, let me just say real quick, maybe because um, Spanish is my first language and I never really studied it in school. I learned it through my mom and then my family in Mexico and in high school, I went to Spanish class and I fucking failed. That same summer that I went there, my grandfather invited me to Mexico to go work in his factory for a summer in the office there. So when I was 13, I'm in Mexico working at a Mexican office in Spanish, obviously. Then I come back to high school and I fail Spanish class against these kids who have never actually spoken it in real life. So I'm just saying it wouldn't, not necessarily going to help, but I understand what you're saying. That <laughs> wow. the point being that hearing and doing in real life, um, and actually uh, utilizing, goes way further than book learning. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see that in every situation, don't we? I mean, yeah, totally. Like, like, let's just relate that back to guitar. It's like the people that want to become like their famous guitar player always kind of sounds like a scale. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the people that have done it, they found the musicality within it. And you can really hear that when someone's got the experience and when someone doesn't. Yeah, 100%. You can't learn experience at the end of the day, can you? Like, No. It's one of those things that even I noticed with players, like one of the biggest learning experiences for me was um, I was playing in covers bands quite a lot when I was like 18, 19 where it was mainly like um, old school soul, funk, you know, like Luther Vandross, like loads of Stevie Wonder and things like that. And it introduced me actually to, there was two musicians, a keyboard player and a bass player who were, they were gospel guys, you know. And I remember like the first gig with them feeling like I knew nothing about the songs which we'd been playing for, you know, months before. It was all the sounds that I'd never heard, all the reharmonizations and things like that. And they were doing it all on the fly. And like <laughs> I'd ask them afterwards, what was that that you were doing there? And they could not describe at all to me what it was. You know, it'd just be, oh, it was kind of this chord and then it was this chord. And I'd be thinking, really? Like, that sounds so harmonically complex and you can't describe that to me in a way I can understand. But it made me realise that, I mean, after two years of doing those gigs, that opened up a whole other world. You know, it was language that I wasn't exposed to before. It was sounds that I wouldn't think would work, that all of a sudden my ear would accept. Yeah, that for me, I would say, and I think Tom Quayle agrees with me, although I'd like kind of learned the foundations with Tom, where I rarely learned was when I was gigging and when I was just forced into these horrible situations where, you know, a bass player and a keyboard player can throw a shape and look and laugh and you feel like the idiot that's not able to make a single one of those chord changes. You know, like that was that was the real learning curve. And that's, again, experience over book learning, shall we say, isn't it? You know, I think there's something about doing it in real life like that where there's another factor you can't simulate in the rehearsal room, which is uh, adrenaline and adrenaline affects the way we think. Like when we're getting an adrenaline dump, our brain functions differently. And so do our motor skills. Like our motor skills reduce by a factor of, I'm not sure what, but it's something like 30%, 40%. It's extreme. 
And then our ability to intellectually understand what's going on also diminishes. We kind of go into, we kind of go into an automatic fight or flight mode and, uh, and that adrenaline dump happens on stage. And so our ability to think through musical problems kind of goes away and to rely on things that are shaky, that kind of goes away. So it forces you, you like, it forces you to get better. You have to, because you don't have anything to fall back on. Your brain thinks that you're fighting for survival. And so it will evolve quickly to those challenges or not at all. This is the same reason for why when you see a local band open for a touring package, the local band could have talented people that are more talented than some of the touring bands that happens. But 99 out of 100 times, no matter how talented that local band is, the first band on the touring package is going to blow them off the stage, even if it's not as talented of a band. Just because of the sheer fact that they have way more experience playing under those conditions, they're just going to be better. Um, and so I think that it's the same thing that you're saying, that those experiences are really where you evolve. I do I do actually have a question in relation to that. Is uh, Have you ever seen a local band blow away a touring band before? Because I've seen it twice. Yeah, that's what I said. 99 out of 100. There's always going to be... <laughs> but I want to know who it was. I want to know who it was. I can tell you exactly who I saw playing with who I saw. Tell me. So it was Tesseract right at the beginning. Obviously, they had well, the there you experience. <laughs> but Surprise. They, uh, they supported Shy Halud, who are one of my favorite bands. I think they're absolutely phenomenal. But Tesseract, since the beginning, it's just been obscene. <laughs> and I have not seen an example that extreme. I have definitely seen local bands that made other bands eat shit, but then those local <laughs> bands didn't go on to do anything. That's really frustrating, isn't it? Yeah, which is a bummer. But uh, the closest thing I've ever seen was when I saw Muse open up for My Chemical Romance. Oh my God, oh, what? what? Yeah, in the US in like 2010 or nine or something. So they weren't given any lights. They had to play at the front of the stage, like a little opening band. And I've heard that the amount of uh, humiliation incurred by MCR going on after Muse, even like Muse like stripped down like that was devastating to their confidence devastating um i can imagine I saw it. it was fucking <laughs> insane without lights without production they still fucking massacred like savagely so i've never seen it with like a local band that did it to that level and then went on to become big like tesseract or anything but i believe you i can't imagine tesseract ever sucking <laughs> no they didn't. <laughs> yeah, but I, I right? also saw their first ever show and it was still fucking great, you know? But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think any band should have to follow Muse. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't even say that My Chemical Romance were a bad band. No, they were fine. Yeah, they were fine. And they were huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, it's a bad decision. So, like, I, I remember there was a tour, I forget if it was Mayhem Fest, but co-headlined by Slipknot and Disturbed. And I, and there was a big story about who's the headliner and all that, which I think was just a media thing. I don't think they were actually fighting because there was this, like, public fight and then 
it turned out that Slipknot was closing. But of course Slipknot's closing. What intelligent band who understands how things work would want to follow Slipknot? Yeah. It just, you just, you don't do it. I mean, Metallica could, but that's about it. Yeah. 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 You just, you should just know better. It's just not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of maybe the only time I've seen that was Phil X before Phil X was was huge. Do you guys are you guys familiar with Phil X? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. He's with uh, Bon Jovi now, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was supporting Steel Panther, and I remember it was maybe one of my first times in LA, and I didn't really know too much of who Steel Panther were. And don't get me wrong, they were amazing as well. But good guitar player. Yeah, Satchel is insane, isn't he? But um, yeah, I remember Phil X had like a trio, and like he blew my mind. I I I had no idea who he was. You know, just him. It's balls to the wall kind of eighties rock, isn't it? You know, he did versions of Led Zeppelin tunes and things like that, and it kind of. I'd say it was at least on par with Steel Panther, even though they had all the tracks, all the production and all that kind of stuff. And they're a four-piece band. You forget about the comedy elements. It was one of them. You could tell Phil X was about to explode. And then all of a sudden he was in Bon Jovi, wasn't he? And the rest is history, I guess, for him. That's the closest I've ever seen to a, a support act, like really blowing, well, or being on par at least with the, the main band, yeah. I can't believe that Muse story, though. That's that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Gojira do it too once. Oh, really? Oh. Who are they supporting? Child for a Cowboy. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. To be fair, actually, I also saw it as well with Gojira supporting Skindred. Gojira and Behemoths opening up for Child for a Cowboy. Oh, what? Wow. Talk, talk about a... Uh, psychological <laughs> head fuck <laughs> having to follow those two bands. I mean, yeah, I saw Devil Driver headlining above Behemoth once too. Yeah, don't follow Behemoth. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just don't do it. Luckily, when we did OzFest with them, luckily there was a... Man, I don't remember if they were on the rotation or not, but I feel like they were. But there was enough of a separation always to where I never felt like... Like I never wanted to kill myself. (laughs) Because following them will make you want to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. Someone I was just talking to said that, oh, I'm pretty sure it was Rutan. I think. Man, I talked to a lot of people. But someone was, someone I just talked to was talking about how important it is as a musician or a band to play with bands that are better than you. Like, play with a band that blows your band out of the fucking water and learn to deal with it because it's one of the best lessons you can ever have is you think you're awesome and then you play this show with a band that just eats your lunch basically and uh, how do you deal with that does it make you better do you learn why they're better does it crush you like what happens but i think that that's one of the best things you can possibly do and i think the same goes for the kind of situation you're talking about i mean getting yourself into a situation where you're on stage around some heavy motherfuckers yes dude sink sink or swim 
the same applies to musicians. They're always play with musicians that are better than you. Like you won't, you won't learn if you're the best musician in the band. You won't learn anything. Well, there are certain things you learn. Obviously, how to deal with certain. You know, say if someone's time feels not great, that can that can teach you things. But I always say. If you want to learn more about yourself as a musician, then play with cats who will absolutely fucking murder you. <laughs> That's the thing. I think for me, the most I ever learned was with that band, but also being sat with the likes of Tom Quayle in a room and Rick Graham and, you know, sitting jamming with them, knowing that I was maybe one hundredth of the level. It just teaches you so much. It's hard sometimes to believe that you can play what someone else plays until they do it in front of you, I think. You know, like if say if say you see like my heroes Guthrie Govan and you, you watch videos of that and you think, wow, that's just another level. That's impossible. But when you see it physically in the room, someone playing like that, it feels achievable. I don't know if you guys feel the same way when you watch a band or things like that. Well, I think it's interesting you say that because I think uh, that comes down to our psychology. Some people will be in that scenario and think I can never do this. I should cut my arms off. <laughs> like that's that's the that's the reaction a lot of people have um i mean and that reaction is as old as time like i remember i believe it was eric clapton and george harrison saw Jimi hendrix play yeah and had a what the fuck are we gonna do meeting in the parking lot so yeah. like that that reaction that reaction is, I think, hardwired. So it doesn't mean that someone's going to fail at music if they have the I'll never be able to, like, what the fuck feeling. But I think it's interesting because there's some people who will encounter that scenario and be like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Yes. Sounds like you fall into that category. <laughs> well, maybe we go through, maybe to not. A degree. <laughs> like, yeah. You can see the mechanics more, can't you? It's obviously, as well, part of it is the fact that a video, I mean, it adds to the whole experience, doesn't it? You know, you see that on a, on film. It's very different from seeing a 3D image of someone doing it right there. Like, you can see how the hand moves. You can see how the technique actually works. Sometimes you only get, like, a camera angle where it's, like, a zoomed-up thing on a fretboard and it doesn't really make sense. But, yeah, to actually... To actually see Tom and Rick do that, it was more the inspiration to think, right, if I if I practice, maybe I can get to a similar level. It's not impossible like it looks on a video. I think that was the main psychology going on with me, you know. There's a human that can do this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's achievable. A human like me. Yeah. yeah. If you put the work in, I guess. Something you just mentioned uh, about it not seeming real on video. I think that hero worship is dangerous like it really bothers me when i see that in the riff hard or urm student communities uh like i don't want to be an asshole about it like i don't want and i don't want to say something like stop worshiping this guy because this guy they're worshiping is usually my friend or something or like someone we work with so i don't want to like publicly be like yo let's talk some shit about a friend of mine and it'll come off super negative and i don't want people to not look up to people that are great. But when it crosses into this weird deity hero worship where they stop seeing them as another person and just start seeing them as this entity that beamed down from the mothership with this, with these musical gifts to give the world, it gets a little strange. Yes. There's a couple of people that deserve that though. Come on. There is a couple of people that do deserve that. One of them is Alan Holdsworth. Come on. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on, Al. There's a couple of them. You gotta, you gotta admit. But his his fans are some of the most toxic fans I've ever seen. <laughs> his fans are horrendous. I'm in an Alan Holdsworth group on Facebook. His fans are not cool, not at all. I mean, there's a big difference between admiring and respecting and loving yeah, a great artist. You can do all those things. You can love the shit out of an artist and respect the shit out of an artist, appreciate the shit out of them, recognize everything that they did give to the art form without transitioning into guru, weirdo. hero, deity <laughs> worship. Yeah. Like, I, you, I don't you can think just say anyone weirdo. deserves, I don't think any humans deserve that. No. No, and I don't think any human wants that unless there's something messed up going on up there anyway yeah some weird wiring crossed up there yeah to be fair though i did have a little cry to some music yesterday i mean great i didn't i didn't message him though and tell him (laughs) (laughs) tell him that i want to like suck his toes i don't think music (laughs) having its effect on you is the same thing as deity worship yeah that's just taking in the art for what it is and letting it have its effect on you it's very different. When you see some of the Holdsworth fans, like you can show them someone, you know, play at a similar level to Holdsworth, should I say, or with like similar kind of improvisational chops and whatnot. And Holdsworth fans will cut that person to pieces saying why they're shit, why they'll never be like Alan and all this kind of stuff. It, it just gets a bit freaky to me. I, I Yeah. Well, the part they're right about is that... He won't be Alan. (laughs) That person will never be like Alan. Yes, of course. They are correct about that. But it's the method, right? It's the method in which they're doing it. Yeah. I don't think that their intent is right on. I mean, how can anyone ever be like anyone else, especially with something as personal as music? Of course, no one's going to be like Alan. That's not even the point. Yeah. Alan is Alan. Yeah. The end. It's weird with these, these fans... It's almost like they treat it like sports to where if you like this team, then you can't like that team because there's this it's a team. It's a team thing where uh, someone else being great at guitar and having, you know, a similar level of ability as Alan Holdsworth doesn't in any way, shape or form take away Alan Holdsworth's impact on music at all. What a great example of this is. You know, when obviously we lost Van Halen and Holdsworth a few years ago was Holdsworth, wasn't it? I saw there was like a few pictures had gone up of them two together. And like the majority of people were saying, you know, of course, these are two absolute monsters of guitar. And then there was the comments from one side and the other side that was like... I saw that. Yeah. And it was, how can how can you even put these two in the same brackets and all this kind of stuff? I think I saw someone say, I can't believe that Alan would go slumming. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, and you, mental. Yeah. You think for those two, they were just good mates. Like, why would there ever be any kind of comparison? They were both, you know, ridiculous at what they did. And as you said earlier, Al, like, of course they were not going to be like each other. You know, no one was going to be like Alan. Eddie was not going to be like Alan, and Alan was not going to be like Eddie. But that doesn't mean that we should put them on levels and say, he can't hang out with him, he doesn't deserve to be in the same bracket. It's that weird, like, kind of sports aspect to it, like you said, that I find really weird. Yeah, and the thing that I've noticed, too, is these super virtuoso guitar players that I know, 
really, really respect people who maybe aren't as virtuosic as they are, but who have done their own thing and have their own voice and like have mastered what it is that they do. I think musicians, like real musicians respect that. Like, I don't think that I know any virtuosos that are sitting there expecting every other musician to do exactly what they did. Yeah. Also, do you think that maybe with virtuosos, if we want to call them that, they just don't care. Like, you know, they've just like, oh, that guy's really good. He's gone down that path of learning how to do that, you know, like, and they respect that because they know the amount of work they had to put in to get to what they were doing. Yeah. Like, remember when he had Jeff Loomis on here and how much he was talking about just great songwriters? Yes. What a player he is as well. Yeah. Players that obviously can't play the way he plays, but uh, he had nothing but positive things to say about, like, songwriting type guitar players yeah perfect example i think yeah man i mean you can find beauty in a guy playing three chords you know in a very certain way if they've got good tone good time feel all of that kind of stuff i think for for virtuoso players like someone like guthrie he's more inclined i would think i know i'm speaking for him here but to listen to someone do that rather than someone play a million notes at him and say, you know, oh, what do you think of this? You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, he's already proven that, hasn't he? Because he plays with Hans Zimmer. And that kind of speaks volumes, doesn't it, about what he wants to do. Like, I can't imagine that any part of Hans's set really challenges him in a guitar, you know, as a guitar player. But he just sits at the back. He's not the focus of attention. He's doing his thing and he's probably loving every fucking second of it. Oh, cause I know the I coolest would. fucking music. Yes. Dude, yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I cried to yesterday. I put on the live version of no time for caution. And at the end of it, it's heavier. It's got like the drum kit and there's actually drum fills and stuff. And it was just like, ah, it sounds so good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, Ultimately, like, you know, all of us know that we could probably play something infinitely more complex than that, but it was just, it's just so beautifully written. Yeah. It's like my favorite part of that Hans Zimmer show is the Thelma and Louise, you know, um, Guthrie plays that with the slide, the solo. Yeah. And I remember just being like, oh my God, there's like the least notes you've heard here during this part. That (laughs) was the tastiest guitar thing of the whole night, you know, and it's, it, you, everyone knows what Guthrie is capable of, but it's that kind of, it's playing for the music, isn't it? No one cares that yeah. he's a virtuoso in that part. They just want to hear nice music at the end of the day. And I think that's always more important. And I think for the virtuoso guitarists, they realise that as well. Of course, they have all the technical facility in the world and they're pushing boundaries. But at the end of the day, like that impresses people, whereas music is something that stays with people, isn't it? You know, I don't think in 10 years people are going to go, do you remember watching that guy's video on YouTube that was like 30 seconds long where he did that crazy tapping thing or, you know, shred (laughs) thing? It's like, oh, what about that track? You know, it's more that, isn't it? I think, I think, I hope. I never know. I hope too. (laughs) Actually, speaking of which, actually, um, do you think that maybe, and this is a question for you too, Al, that we as guitar players have tendencies of, you know, this thing that we're complaining about, about, you know, putting these humans on this pedestal and we're seeing it more of a sport. Do you think to a degree, most guitar players think like that because the first stages of actually learning the instrument is almost a sport? What do you mean that? Like in order to get that good, it is lots of technical exercises, almost like training. Weight training almost. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you think that maybe 
everyone gets to a certain point where they're just like, oh, I just don't care about that anymore. Give me a song. Hmm. There's a bit of musical maturity that comes with it too, right? Because how much maturity is a 16-year-old going to have musically? I mean, some of them quite well. <laughs> I wouldn't confuse maturity with ability. Okay, yeah, very true. I think that when you're first starting, no matter how quickly you get good at the physical part, you're still just starting. You still have to get that under your belt. And yeah, I think because of the competitive nature of getting good at a physical task, there is going to be some of that, which is cool because uh, a little bit of competition and a feeling of competition goes a long way. That's a good thing. I do think that there is that aspect to music uh, with instrumentalists and which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's, there's a way to have a friendly competition um, going where it doesn't get in the way of anything. But the part that I'm talking about more is people who are not inside of that competition, people on the outside, just who have opinions, whose opinions are fucking insane. <laughs> I'm not necessarily talking about the guitar players in the game who have a friend. I mean, I know that lots of the people we've had on this podcast have a friendly competition with each other. It's not in a sporting kind of way. They're not trying to kill each other <laughs> on the field or anything like that. If anything, they're trying to learn from each other, but they do have this inner sense of trying to be better for sure. I guess what I'm wondering is, is what you're suggesting that because early on, in your guitar playing, you might over-focus on the physical stuff, and that's where a lot of people stay forever. And so they approach all guitar playing that they listen to, or they basically superimpose their feelings onto these people that are way past that. Yes, that's basically the premise of it, yeah. So basically not realizing just how far someone like Ellen Holdsworth is from being in that mode. And so superimposing the feelings of a beginner onto someone like Alan. Kind of, yeah, but maybe not even like that. But just as like what I'm saying is, is that obviously there is a sport element to it and it's going to have that element of always wanting to always, I guess to a degree, comparing yourself to one another because that's what it stems from, right? Mm -hmm. It's the comparison between guitar players and whether that's yourself or comparing Alan to Eddie, which is, you know, completely pointless because yeah. <laughs> they're both completely different players. But what I'm saying is, does that element ever really go away? That's kind of was the premise, which I don't think it does. I just think you learn how to control it because it doesn't matter. I agree. Unless you're completely disconnected from the world around you and don't realize that there's a world around you, it's almost impossible as a human to not compare yourself because you always want to know where you stand. We're kind of wired to know where we stand. So I think a lot of it is just figuring out where we are in relation to everyone else. No, I was going to say, it reminds me of the, the, the pie chart. Have you seen that where it's like, you know, daily musicians life. It was a meme a while ago and it was like, you know, 99% fearing child prodigies, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like, it's kind of like, that that there is some element of that i'm sure we've all been there where you watch like a 13 year old kid play something that you may have took a few years to to get to grips with and you go yep. oh fucking hell am i am i really that shit you know like but it, it it's all about context isn't it and being able to separate yourself in that situation and understand that you know a lot of these kids i guess the, the access that they have now is insane the information that you know 
my generation, we I guess we started with the YouTube thing and we could find these players. But now, I mean, man, you could go and find whatever player you want or any musician you want. And I'm pretty sure you can find a transcription or a video of them, you know, someone teaching you how to do that. My point is, is that it's about context with that. When you see an 11 year old kid playing something now that, you know, 10 years ago you were working on as an 18 year old struggling with, you've got to remember that actually the technology has allowed that to, to kind of be more accessible these days. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? Like, yeah. Yes. But there's always been child prodigies and, I have seen a lot of them through my dad. Um, There's at least once or twice a year, there was always like some nine-year-old violinist who would come and play with the orchestra. But the thing is, it can be scary to see that. But at the same time, it's kind of dumb because you don't know the whole story and what's going to happen next. Um, Especially with videos, all you're seeing is that one video. You don't know if that's the one thing the kid can do. Like the kid has spent the past three years only working on this one thing and it kind of can do a trick, Yeah, which it usually ends up being what a lot of the child prodigies are is uh, their children. How much can they actually do? Give credit to the ones that can though. Give credit to the ones who can. <laughs> sure. But there's also a reason for why most of them end up quitting. Yes. Yeah. That's because it's been forced, I guess, into their daily routine. Yeah. So which is why it's pointless to let it worry you. But uh, I totally understand the feeling of, holy shit, <laughs> this kid can do that. I was uh, I was learning fade to black. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? Um, it's like just to go back one last time to the comparing to others. It's weird how we always compare technical ability, but we generally don't compare when it comes to songwriting ability. Like, obviously, I've definitely had feelings. Ah, oh, I wish I wrote that. You know, everyone gets that kind of vibe. But it's weird how it's always seems to just be on technical premise or weird. Was, weird yeah. you say that because uh, Mike Ackerfeld and Matt Bellamy and stuff intimidate me way more than virtuosos. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But that that probably wasn't how it was at the beginning, though, right? No, it was Ingve. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess though that's because technique can be measured, can't it? Whereas songwriting, it's hard to give a measurement of what's good and bad. You can under, you can hear it, and we can all have our opinions on that. But like technique, you can see that someone can alternate pick up, I don't know, two hundred BPM or something like that. Whereas, how do you define what's a good song? That's a lot harder, isn't it? Especially for the one that you're still singing fifteen years later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But for a child's brain or a teenager's brain, that's difficult to maybe <laughs> well isn't the trajectory though typically you get into music you try to get better at it and the first thing that comes up for a lot of players is overcoming the the physical thing and so that becomes the focus but then once that's not so much of an issue you put in the five years of 10 hours a day or whatever and not to say that there's not room to grow in the physical aspect but it's you know, it's under control. I think that at that point, musicians start to think about, well, what am I trying to say with this? Like, what's, what's the point? Why, why am I practicing this much? Like, where's this all going? I I think that's a natural progression. I mean, there's some people who don't have that technical bug whatsoever when they start. And that's cool too. But I think for people who do have the technical bug, 
obviously that's going to be first because the things that they want to be able to do require require quite a significant investment in time and effort to do years and years and years and years. Um, and it's impossible to even think about being expressive on a level like, like Guthrie or something. If you can't even play any of it, like if your fingers won't even do it, I think. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense to me. I just think some people never really get out of that phase. It's technicality versus musicality, isn't it? That's the word I was looking for. Like, if you can combine them both together, then great. But as you say, it's really difficult to get out of just thinking about technical facility all the time. That's definitely, for me, I'd I'd say it's a younger mindset, isn't it? The second you can bridge that gap, the better in terms of what you're going to make in terms of music, I think. So you're pretty young. Where's your head at with uh, with this stuff? (laughs) Yeah. So for me, man, I don't really care about technique anymore like it's not something that i particularly find impressive unless there's a musical application if i hear like you know especially in the metal world the shredders that can do insane things that i wouldn't think are possible but unless i hear some kind of musicality in there then it doesn't really interest me anymore what about for you though like uh how long did you spend on the technical side i mean you had to have put your time in for sure oh dude when i was 15 like it was literally eight hours sometimes 10 hours a day i'd I'd go to school i'd play before school i used to skip classes to go to the music department we had like a very hidden area where i'd go practice there and then the second i got home i'd play until it was time for bed essentially there was there was two years where that was almost a daily thing and then it, it dropped off i think when i got to meet tom which which you'd think would be the opposite you'd think you get that light bulb moment and you go right okay i'll i'll carry on from there but no it was more than a case of effective practice in a different way it was more about the improvisation side of things whereas technique when i was 14 15 that was something i would drill pretty much every day you know, those are the years I've said it many times. Those are the years where you should do that because you can. Yes. Life allows for it. And if you do that in those years and then you get out of high school, having put in the two to five years of serious, serious practice, it's going to open you up to being able to really, really take advantage of both your youth and abilities, which is really, really cool. Rather than waiting till later to try to get really good it's good to have that kind of out of the way yeah i would say the majority of like pupils that come to me for technique based things are usually they're obviously teenagers but most i would say are in their 30s maybe even 40s and it's like they feel like they've they've neglected that side of things and now it's trying to balance that with a job it's trying to balance it with all those other things as you said al like it's lucky that when you're 15, there's not really any other responsibilities. You can do that. Now, if I wanted to sit there and drill, you know, like technique-based stuff, I don't know how I'd find the time to to really do it in a focused way, you know, for 10 hours where... And, and keep it fun. I think at 15, <laughs> you, can, you can find doing the same thing over and over and over again fun, you know, like in terms of like 10 hours yeah. kind of thing. That's much more difficult. It's weird how I could amuse myself with that. It's so that's that 
musical maturity thing I was talking about earlier, there comes a point, I think, in our development where we can't focus on that sort of thing the way we, we could have at one point in time because our brain has gotten past that. It needs more stimulus. But, you know, I think when you're 15, 16, 17, 14, uh, your brain is in the perfect spot to just drill the shit out of some shit. Grind. Not saying you can't do it when you're 30. You could do it when you're 30. Of course, yeah. It's just going to be a lot harder. (laughs) I was just going to say, I've noticed this even with when it comes to long songwriting sessions. So when I was younger, I would happily sit there for the entire day, forget to eat. 36 hours. (laughs) Yeah, 36 hour days. Just writing music on Cubase and experimenting with the different things that you could do that I potentially didn't even properly understand at that point, you know? But now when I go to sit down, I'm lucky if I get four hours in just because, you know, mind wanders to different places. And obviously there's the responsibility element <laughs> of being an adult. Also, when you say that, um, that's that's given me an idea. Do you find that now, so say you said, you know, even if there was something you had to overcome in that songwriting process, you know, like maybe it was something in Cubase you didn't know how to use yet. If we relate that back to guitar, now I find if I can't do something straight away, then my patience is gone. And I'm like, well, fuck the idea. Let's just move on to something (laughs) that I can do. Like, whereas back then you'll spend four hours trying to find a solution and it's no issue. Like now... That those four hours are a precious time that you could be doing something else, isn't it? You know, getting yep. across that stumbling block. It could inhibit our creativity, I think, as well. But it's one of those things when we're younger, we're kind of more accept- accepting of the fact that it, it could take that grind, you know? Yep. What else we got to do? Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, that, I mean, think about it. When you're in high school, you've got your grades. That's it. It's when you're an adult, you've got taxes, you've got your job. If you run a company that you don't want that to fall apart, there's probably a relationship in your life that you need to water like a plant. Like there's so many different things that you can't just sit there for two days straight (laughs) working on some dumb exercise. My mom's not going to make my dinner. My mom's not going to wash my clothes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I can I can go without showering for three days. That's the thing back then, isn't it? Like, just this. <laughs> it's true, though. And so I've noticed that the people who ha- who did use that time like that have an advantage. They have an advantage over people who didn't. Now, that's not to say that you can't develop amazing skill using your time efficiently as an adult. But I think that's kind of what it requires is super efficiency. Yeah, you're right. That's a perfect way to, to sum that up. Yeah, it's so much harder to balance. So telling a lie, I have been working on alternate picking. That's one thing this year. I wish I had, you know, two weeks where I could just solidly focus on that. But that's, alas, that's not going to happen. That's a good question. Now that you do have your shit going on. You're an adult. Yeah. There is a technical thing you want to work on, but obviously you said technique is not the priority anymore, but obviously you can't just let it go. So you want to get good at this thing you're trying to do with alternate picking. How do you fit that in? Basically I have to go right. Okay. 20 minute bursts, timer on, no distractions, film myself doing it and analyze the mechanics of what's actually What's going wrong and how can I, you know, what, what's the economy of motion like? How can I 
really zone in on what the mistake is here is my shoulder relaxed is my elbow relaxed it's more of like an analytical kind of like sports approach to it i think rather than just like let's play this for three hours and i'll get there eventually (laughs) so question though that's awesome is it maybe better like say that you had been doing that all along could you have saved yourself a lot of time? 100%. I wouldn't have like the bad habits, which I have now that I try to get rid of. It's always one of them, isn't it? You know, when you when you learn technique, I'm sure a lot of us find like our strengths when we when we do it without really caring and without really analyzing. I'm sure like John, for you with like the down picking thing, you probably never gave that a thought, did you? Was that more of just uh, a... Yeah, I gave that a thought. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So... The main focus of that came from when I was I started really properly recording myself. Right. And I want to say it was probably sort of like late 2008, I want to say. Right. When I really started focusing on that. And I spent like two years just every single day recording something, which ended up then becoming the first Monuments record. And I'd say that that period of time was probably the most valuable to me. And it's quite weird that I would say that that's the most valuable to me because I used to spend hours and hours a day when I was 15, 16, just playing guitar. And obviously in 2008, I was 22 years old, but I was also able to spend a lot of time playing the instrument. I'd say I'd make the most progression in those two years. That's interesting. But you said a very important thing there was that you were recording yourself. Yeah, that was the most amount I, you know, and as you're filming yourself now, not only are you hearing the mistakes, you're also visually seeing them, which obviously in 2008... It was different. <laughs> it was different because the iPhone had literally only just come out. I didn't get my first iPhone until 2011. Yeah, I was the same as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would actually say that recording, like that was one of the things that was missing in my childhood that I think that if I had that between the age of 14 and 16 with, you know, all these plugins, all of these drum kit packs all of that stuff, I think I would make a lot more progression. But then again, maybe not because of the mu- the maturity of me as a 14 to 16 year old and time management. I think like, I would have had to still play for that amount of hours per day. Whereas, mm. do you reckon that's also part of it for you? Like obviously now you know how to make the most amount of your time. I was about to say that the thing, the problem with trying to go back in time and saying, oh, if I could have just done it like that back then, is well back then would you have even known to look for all those things like yes shoulder relaxed am i I in the right position like would you even know what to analyze exactly exactly yeah you're right hindsight's a bitch (laughs) (laughs) i think it's one of them like i was maybe a bit bit more lucky john because i started youtube when it first came out when i was like 14 15 i think maybe even 13 so back in like 2008 that i had like an eye toy you remember the the playstation camera you were like or whatever? five years old <laughs> yeah. i think i guess 13 yeah into when yes yeah, so that would be in 2008 sorry and man that kind of i guess even back then i was watching to see what was going on but not with this deep level of analytics, as as you said, I, I have no idea about the shoulder being relaxed, you know, like the elbow, but at least I could kind of see, okay, I'm sweet picking there, or, oh, okay, that's legato, you know, things like this that when you're playing, you're not necessarily aware of, shall we say. There was that. Another big leap for me was maybe 2012, when I first got, like, 
a HD camera and started to record myself properly, that was when I could see again, like it was like another jump, you know, in terms of level, especially with improvisation. That's, I guess, like the main thing which I do. I could hear that the phrases were starting to mature. They weren't, I don't think you ever get satisfied with how you improvise, but I could see that they were starting to become more coherent. It was like when, if I was to relate it back to language, I was starting to be able to speak sentences quite fluently. Whereas before it was more just like random words, you know, that was another, I guess, stepping stone. And I think even now it's good that I've got this collection now that I can see all the way back of, oh, okay, I must have been listening to this player at that point, or I must have been looking at this technique at that point. It's nice to go back and analyze and go, hmm, maybe I can look at that a bit more in depth. You know, there's one technique, especially which I use at the minute, which um, it was Andy Wood. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with him. Yeah, he's fucking sick. Monster, like country style player, but also like the fusion stuff as well. But he'd asked me, Jackie was like, what is that like sweet pick thing that you do? It's like a rake. And I'd always thought of it as just like, it was my shitty attempt at playing like Guthrie or Tom or, you know, when they do the crazy legato runs. And it's, it's kind of like dawned on me now that that has come from me attempting to emulate it with bad technique. It's almost created my own technique. That's a sound that I would consider is probably my own. It came from all of these faults, if that makes sense. It's like, if I'd have gone in and I'd looked at just sweet picking alone, I don't know if I would have came up with this sound, you know, or if I'd have really in-depthly studied what Guthrie was doing or what Tom was doing. I'd probably just sound like them. Whereas this has kind of given me my own language, if you like. It's my own little asset or stamp that I can put on things that I don't think would have came about if I hadn't made the mistakes, shall we say. So do you consider them mistakes? I still do, but I think other people think that they're not anymore. So it's kind of like, I'll let it go. I think that I can get it cleaner, but I've kind of, I've kind of accepted that that's a part of the vocabulary now. So I'm trying to develop it in a way where I can explore maybe other ideas and apply it to different sounds and different modes and scales and things like that. Like, can I find different ways of navigating the fretboard using this kind of sweep economy thing? I think one, (laughs) Andy called it like the garden of rake. It was like play on words. I was like, yeah, that (laughs) that kind of makes sense. Yeah, because it is a, a rake movement. But yeah, it's given me food for thought, you know, for the next few months of what I want to work on when I improvise alongside working on ultimate picking still. So do you think that guitar players should try to develop their own voice or should they just try to get better because their own voice will come naturally through those mistakes and through their personality anyways? Man, own voice, 100%. Like um, transcribe, I always say, if you want to get better as an improviser, transcription is the most important thing. But when you you know, start the process of transcription, you'll find things that you do differently or that you might find, say like you, you transcribe a, a Guthrie phrase, you might find that the first three notes of that may lead you on a different path because you go, ah, that's how it works. Well, what if I, what if I take this up a minor third or what if I, you know, like explore this sound more in depth just with this triad that I've learned with these three notes? 
I think that's the way to develop your own voice. I think the whole idea of trying to practice technique and get better, that's all well and good, but you need to be doing it in a musical way. There needs to be some musical application. So when I'm practicing alternate picking, of course I'm looking at the mechanics and things like that, but the quickest I can make that into music or you know, the fastest way I can make that into music, the more I'm going to develop that technique. I think anyway, and it's going to be more beneficial. It's actually music, then it's not the sport side of things. Does that does that make sense, or am I just chatting shit here? <laughs> it makes no, complete it, sense. It makes sense. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed as I got older is that a lot of guitar players do have not only their little quirks, but also their sets of licks that they and their shapes that they like to go around. And I've said this in probably numerous other episodes of this podcast, but like you know, Vi. Lydian has his own licks that you can see repeating amongst different songs. Now, you know, some people would say that, oh, he's ran out of ideas, whereas I actually think it's down to musical identity. That's his voice. Yeah, and we, we're going to gravitate towards things that we like the sound of. And I guess that brings me to the question, do you have a set of jackisms, whether that be licks or certain you know, uh, shapes or phrases that you gravitate towards and you see repeats of this in everything that you write? I notice that I play the same phrases all the time, just in maybe it's a different different application in the sense that there might be a line that I play over one chord that I will play and just adapt, say the notes to get to the next chord with that. Man, it, it's one of them. There's there's a there's an argument in terms of the improvisation based stuff. Are we ever truly improvising, or is it just things that we've played before? Which I'm going to be inclined to say that. Improvisation, yes, we the idea is that we're grabbing all of these different things and you know creating a sentence with all these different phrases and things like that. But I think all of these things could be things that we've already played before. It's just a different way <laughs> of doing it. I don't think, for example, like when Guthrie's improvising, although it all sounds fresh, I've transcribed enough of him to almost know what's coming next. Do you know what I mean? Like, or <laughs> the same with Tom, my old teacher. I can hear ideas that might not be the, the exact idea, but I can get an idea of what may be coming next if he's played a certain shape. And that's just the nature of the fingers determining things, you know, that, that follow. Well, that's the musical voice we're talking about. Exactly. I mean, when you get to know someone that you're close with, and I guess you've gotten close with their musical personality, right? But when you're in a relationship with a human, any kind of relationship, if you know them long enough, they're not going to be super unpredictable. Like you're going to be able to know how they'll react to lots of different things or how they would respond or where they'll go in certain situations. Yes. I think it's kind of a similar thing. It doesn't mean that they've stopped developing, but that's, you know, their personality that's their personality you figured out exactly exactly spot on man you're laughing brown why are you laughing yeah it's just because it just instantly takes me back to dream theater again and again it just comes up it's just the fact that you know when you listen to octavarium they said they had a massive muse influence throughout that record and you can hear it you can really hear it but it still sounds like dream theater and you can still hear all of petrucci's you know johnisms you can still hear all of Jordan's isms. You can most certainly hear the vocalist isms, but it's still, you can hear that they've listened to something different and just try to apply it in their own way, probably with the same shapes. I think musical identity is, in a guitar player, that's 
way more important if, even if you're taking all those influences like you were saying john about like you know like you know they were listening to muse like i think if you're listening to i don't know as a guitar player you're listening to coltrane take all of that stuff but it's still important to be yourself at the same time you don't you don't ever want to be a copy of someone like there's there's tons of guitarists especially with like malmsteen and those kind of 80s guys that came afterwards that sounded exactly like those dudes you know like they could play all of the licks with the same technical facility and the you know the same speed things like that but those players aren't often remembered are they they're just known as oh that's the guy who sounds like Ingve or that's the sound the guy that sounds like Vi or things like that I think it's important that while you're doing that try to develop your own voice as well you know what do you so say you find a guitar player that you really like something that they're doing how would you go about developing it to be your own voice um like I'm not talking about technique wise maybe you like a certain phrase or a way of phrase moves. I say steal all the phrases you can. Anything <laughs> like you can every day, I always say, for me, I still do this. I'll try and transcribe. When I say transcribe, I don't mean like, you know, write it out, but I'll try and steal and learn one piece of vocab a day, even now. You know, so say like if I'm listening to in the morning when I'm making a, a coffee or something, if I'm listening to a piece of music and I like just one phrase. I'll make it like a mission every day to go to the guitar and go, what was that? You know, and then try and apply it in a musical way, especially if it's like improvisation based, try and apply that in different situations. I think some people like Wayne, for example, the guy who produced my music, he was saying that, you know, he tries to, to write something every day. And I'm sure that's what probably you guys do as well. You know, like <laughs> I'm seeing a, a no then, John. But um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like he just said, because you never know what will come out. My thing with guitar and improvisation is that try and copy a phrase every day and apply it because you never know what will come out, you know. Makes sense. The steel. That's the, that's the best <laughs> way I can say. I know that sounds... What's the phrase? Uh, good artist borrow, great artist steal? <laughs> like who, who said that? How do I not remember who said that? Okay, so it says that this quote has been misattributed many times. So William Faulkner apparently said, good artists copy, great artists steal. But okay, so basically there's no real attribution to this quote. I guess it's kind of just become one of those quotes that people use. I agree with that um, statement because there's no way to actually steal somebody else's art. I mean, you can rip off things and get in trouble for it, but there's no way to actually steal somebody else's art like for instance something the beatles always used to do and paul mccartney talks about this in his book is uh you know they were a cover band they played in germany for years like five sets a night all covers they were playing like elvis songs and jazz standards and all kinds of stuff and they uh started to feel like well we could do a better version of this song or um that's a killer bass line it should be in a better song so they would have one of their own songs and they'd take a bass line or something from some song that they covered thinking to themselves, well, what a, what a waste that it's in that other person's song <laughs> yeah. should be done the, the right way in our song. <laughs> it's hard to actually call it stealing or anything. It's more just uh, influences, I think. But all the greats have some sort of a story like that at some point point along the way i don't know of any greats who say that it just came out of nowhere yeah 
like what all their output came out of nowhere didn't come from anybody else even if you think it came out of nowhere the likelihood is that you probably heard it five ten twenty years earlier and for some reason that vague shell of a memory has just made its way forward into your conscious man i (laughs) will i will never forget just on that note being at i think it was my second time i'd flown to nam show and a best friend of mine had came with me this time and we went to watch a guitarist called Rob Marcello. I don't know if you guys know yeah. him. And he was playing at like the Roland booth or something like that. And we're listening to the tune. And I'm going, oh man, this is this is a cool tune. This is nice. And I'll never forget the moment my best friend looked at me and we both had the realization that that was a fucking demo that I'd sent to my mate. I must have heard this on a video or somewhere where I'd just stolen the whole main melody, the whole chorus, everything. It was that moment where you go, oh, shit, you know, kind of thing. What have I done? That that whole idea had to be scrapped. But it was subconscious. I must have just literally listened to it that many times and been like, as a kid, and been like, that's cool. I want to, I want to, you know, like write something like that in the future. And it was pretty much exactly the same, you know. So, yeah, I think subconscious writing or subconscious stealing is definitely a thing. I've done it. (laughs) Yeah. It's good to realize it when it happens, but I don't think that it's as nefarious as people try to make it out to be. Though I have been in the studio with certain artists who are very big right now that literally did say, I want a Slipknot song and would literally make the writers pull up all their favorite Slipknot songs and just take this part from that, this part from that, this part from that. And then the next one would be, I want a Marilyn Manson song. Let's and uh, and but then again, they weren't actually going note for note with anything. They were doing stuff in the style of the whole time. So can you say it's stealing? I'm not so sure, but I mean, I don't think that this artist has much of an original voice. But then again, the audience seems to disagree with me. The audience loves them, and they weren't ripping the stuff off. They weren't doing anything note for note. So it's just super super influenced by and it's weird i have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand it's kind of lame but then on the other hand who am i to say it's lame right who am i to judge i mean to a degree that method is kind of what we do but it's just not as blatant (laughs) we don't like sit there and say oh my god that coltrane line i'm gonna take that and (laughs) i'm literally gonna take what the bass is doing what the entire you know the big band is doing and just like copy it note for note, use the same harmonization. Yeah. I think there's a difference between that and then saying, I want a song to sound like Slipknot. Yeah. And as well, I would say there's a difference in application, like in terms of if it's a composition, then I'd probably have more of an issue with it rather than if it's like an improvised solo. So if you take like a lick or a line that could be, be considered like a quote and you're paying homage to it in a solo. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, would, I wouldn't I would take the whole solo, shall we say, like a, that would yeah. be a bit of a dick move if it was to do that. Like, do you remember that lawsuit that happened with uh, Joe Satriani and Coldplay a couple yes. of years ago? Always With Me, Always With You, wasn't it? And Was it? It was that track, right? Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember yeah. the songs um, that were in that. Do you think they stole it? From what I heard, apparently the guitarist was a massive fan of Satriani. The track was Vida La Vida, wasn't it? I think was the one which that was exactly the same as 
the main melody is the same, but at the same time, that could be totally subconscious, and it's quite exactly. a common melody anyway. I mean, it's, it, it contains just chord tones, and that's what we're going to gravitate towards when we write a melody anyway. So yeah. I could see both sides that, yeah, maybe he's gone and you know deliberately stolen that but at the same time it's like could have just been i think it would have been subconscious more than that because like i mean even like with coldplay being as big as they are but satriani's also massive there's just no way okay yeah sure (laughs) there's just no way that they would have been able to get away with it do you know what i mean it's like there is that element of it and i don't think that any artist of that size would be dumb enough to do that deliberately yes yeah no you're right yeah and you know the same goes with you know um the led zeppelin one with stairway to heaven yes that one's a little (laughs) bit more (laughs) that one's a little bit different though isn't it yeah yeah that's like they what was the other one led zeppelin did was it whole lot of love and there was a blues track which is like the same lyrics and you think okay that's different yeah that's i don't hear it it doesn't sound like stairway to heaven to me really i mean maybe influenced by but yeah i think yeah i mean it didn't sound like it to me either does not sound like a fucking rip to me i think that only somebody with a very unsophisticated ear could somehow draw that i don't buy it i just don't i think it's just because it's the first three chords are the same and then it changes doesn't it but those first three chords are also in stairway to heaven it's a typical so like bossa nova type feel thing you know if you if you swap that it could just be like a classical guitar exercise so then could you say that the dudes that they stole supposedly stole that from did they steal that from like brazilian type classical guitar exercises you know it's like it opens that old whole debate doesn't it like, you know line cliches from jazz yes yeah, yeah okay so line cliches i mean there there's a reason they're called line cliches and it's because people use the shit out of them and the james bond theme is there is a line cliche that is the james bond theme so if you're going to say that the stairway to heaven thing is ripped then which I really don't think it was, then we have to say the James Bond theme is an original and that a bunch of songs that use these line cliches are just rips, which I just don't buy that shit. I'm totally with you on that. I think there was one recently, though. Did you guys see the Toto Justin Bieber thing? Oh, no. I did not. Right, okay. So Justin Bieber's just released a new tune that had like 13 songwriters on. And I think it's Rick Beato who's made a video where he has the two tracks running simultaneously and they sound like exactly the same. That's where I'm starting to think, I mean, it's different lyrics, but would you consider that like plagiarism? You guys would have to hear it. Maybe we can do that after the podcast. I'd have to hear it, but I remember the Nickelback slip. Not, I mean, the Nickelback Dream Theater one. Oh, I haven't heard that. I didn't buy that shit either. Have you heard the Nickelback one that's Nickelback on each side? (laughs) It's like two different songs on an album and it's identical. And it's like, yeah, but who cares about that? I mean, they got more money than me. I mean, how different (laughs) is Coca-Cola classic from Coke? Like, yeah. (laughs) Or Diet Coke from Coke Zero. Yeah. Like when you're talking about Chad Kroger using his formula to create massive commercial success 
Yep. That's his thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's smart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Working yeah, smarter. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. So, I mean, okay, so how do you define plagiarism in your opinion? Not the dictionary, but like at what point do you say, all right, come on? Oh, it's tough. Oh, it's, it's all about context, isn't it? I mean, if a melody and the chord changes and the time feel are all identical, then that's when I'd start to question something. Before that, I'd say you could excuse most cases as just happy accidents, couldn't you? But it depends if I'm talking instrumental music there. If we're talking about pop, then I, I don't know. What what are your guys' feelings on that? Because, I mean, most pop is the same progressions no matter what. So I challenge listeners to go check out um, Shostakovich, Symphony Number no. 10, Movement Number no. 2, and then listen to uh, John Williams's uh, themes to do with the Empire <laughs> from Star yeah. Wars, <laughs> and then listen to Dvorak's Symphony Number no. Nine, and then go listen to Jaws. Interesting. Did he rip it off, or was he just influenced by? I'm going to go with influenced by. Yeah, those are very close. The Shostakovich one, like you can really hear this is where star Wars comes from. Like this is like a much more complicated version of some of this John Williams stuff. And then the Dvorak symphony and jaws and there's stuff like that all over. Listen to uh host the planets and then uh Hans Zimmer's stuff on interstellar, for instance. Hmm. Yeah, I can. That, but then that makes sense to be influenced by in a way, doesn't it? It's influenced by. Yeah. yeah. But I can see how someone who who doesn't have nuance in their musical palette would think it's ripped off because there's some similar shapes. I don't mean like chord shapes. I mean like shapes to the way the music moves. Uh, there's similar patterns. There's similar sounds. But uh, it has to be like Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice and Queen. Okay, yes. Or MC Hammer and uh, I forget who. That one, right? Can't touch this. Yeah, yeah. Rick James. Um, it has to be like that for me to say. Okay, that's 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 kind of close. It's funny. We had an exercise on um riff hard for King of the Riff last month, and it was studying the James Bond theme tune. So I'm just bringing this up because. There are, you know, um, you were talking about line, uh, what's the word you used again? Line cliches. Line cliches, yeah, this, you know, that come from the time period before James Bond was a thing. But even if you study James Bond theme tunes going back, they all have their isms which are included in it, which such as the uh, the 641 progression that is apparent in nearly every single Bond theme. But then if you listen to Skyfall, Adele... And then you listen to Chris Cornell, they sound totally different, but then as based around the same formulas. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. can't call that a ripoff because the only S is the essence of it, which is cap like, you know, when we you were just saying about, you know, uh Dvorak and um the uh theme tune from and John Williams and Jaws and stuff like that. I think that often or not people would take influence from maybe the tonalities that are being created from certain movements as opposed to actually ripping off completely note for note. And I think there's a big difference between that because that's what we're doing to expand on our vocabulary musically. And 
you know, you can play a chord sequence in a certain key and it's going to sound like someone else because they've already done that movement. Mm -hmm. It's whether or not you're copying it note for note in the same tempo, in the same rhythm is when it becomes plagiarism. I think that influencing by a sequence of notes in a certain way isn't plagiarism. I think taking influence from that is a good thing to do because that's how you develop as a musician by taking all these different influences. Yeah. Interestingly, I had a pupil come to me. It's just came to my mind. He was talking about, there's a David Maxim Mitchich. Are you guys familiar with him at all? Of course. He's a genius. Insane player and, and composer. Um, but one of his tracks has a very similar melody to Nana by Guthrie Govan. And I remember the pupil coming to me saying, oh my God, he's just ripped off this. It's it's exactly the same. Listen. And I was like, man, no. Listen to what's actually going on. And the orchestration of David's piece has led him to that. It's not like, yeah, I mean, you can hear that he's not gone. I'm going to steal that Guthrie. Because it's not exactly the yeah. same anyway. But it's the orchestration that's led him to those note choices. It's chord tones at the end of the day. Chord tone. How many melodies can we create that are going to be unique? the end of the day yes. really one correction it's Vorjak symphony number no. nine movement number no. four <laughs> so okay on that what happened with doja cat and Pliny? yes was that was that legit i heard it and i was like am i hearing something wrong okay i could hear something wrong like could you guys explain this to me for me i could hear Pliny's track in that definitely i think where things got dodgy where it wasn't I mean, I could be wrong, so forgive me if this is the case, but didn't the MD say that he was a massive fan of Pliny and then was like, oh, it could have been influenced by it, but then there was, like, no record of him, like, following him or things like that. I know that's a bit, like... Well, okay, but you heard it. Do you think it was influenced by or exactly it? Because it sounds like it started in a similar way, but then... For me, influenced by 100%. I don't think it's, like, a note-for-note thing, is it? I didn't know if I was just hearing fucked up or something because it became such a story. But like I heard them and I was like, this doesn't sound like a direct rip. I'd be inclined to agree, AL. And I had a guy, actually, he was a Spanish pop guy here that we were doing a session for the other week. And I showed him this exact example. He's a singer. He couldn't see what I was on about. So he was like, can you not hear that they're similar? And his ears were just like, no, they sound like two totally different songs to me. I think it was just influenced by, because the guitar player was Larry, right? Yeah, and I, I believe she had no idea, did she, that there was a controversy there or anything like that? When people freaked out about it, I thought that I was going to go hear something, you know, like Vanilla Ice Love <laughs> or something. Or like when you hear like uh, P. Diddy sampling Led Zeppelin or something. Like, I just thought it was going to be that on that level, like, wow, they fucking took a Pliny song. and But then I heard it and was like, what are you guys talking about? I can kind of hear that it was that maybe there's a similar thing happening, kind of, but am I crazy or <laughs> yeah. something? No, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree. It's like they've taken the musical ideas, but it's not a direct rip, is it? As far as I can remember, it's been a few days now since I've heard that. Do you think it was probably in the same scale as well? Yeah, it's 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 all like a it's like a Lydian progression, isn't it? Yeah, that's probably what it is. It's more than that because you know Lydian in itself has its own voice, doesn't it? I think where maybe with that it could be interpreted that way is the rhythmic hits were like okay. really 
so coming from the world which I believe the MD is from he's like a gospel guy that is not normal normal from what I remember when I was playing with those dudes that is not like a normal way that you'd orchestrate something in terms of hits it's very much like a, a more on the rock metal kind of side of things so that would be my only thing where I'd think hmm that's weird you know like usually when they arrange like those kind of Grammy that's what we used to call it like Grammy arrangements with the reharms and all that kind of stuff you're not really getting that kind of rhythmic sophistication that or rhythmic accents, should I say, that go on in that Pliny thing. That's the only thing which would be dubious, but would you call that influenced by, or would you call that a rip-off? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I mean, you know what? I'm glad whatever happened happened, because it got Pliny attention, and anything that gets guitar players like that in the public, great. It's fucking cool. Yeah. Whatever it takes, in my yeah. opinion. Um, it wasn't negative attention towards him at all. So wonderful. Glad it happened. But plenty of you're listening and you disagree. I would love to. I'd love to hear. But uh, I just didn't hear it. There was one line. It's come back to me now. Right at the end of it. There is note for note the same. That would be the only thing which would suggest that the rest of it was lifted to me. You know, if they, if you go back and listen to it, there's a line that the, the rhythm and the note choice is exactly the same. It's this kind of tag that is like the, the real prominent thing in Handmade Cities. If they didn't copy that, then I would say for me, I'd think that it was just influenced by, but now that I'm remembering it, maybe go and listen to it. I Alan C that little line because that is directly lifted so the ending yes okay all right i'll check that out that is definitely lifted note for note hey i'm happy to be wrong <laughs> just it's just came to me yeah. now you know when you're thinking was there anything and that's the one thing i do remember from that that was literally rhythmically and note wise exactly the same so a little lick at the end basically yeah all right i'm gonna check it out <laughs> let's see here so, all right. So I'm looking it up now. Doja Cat pleading. Let's see. <laughs> I can sing you the rhythm of the lick, but I can't pitch it. My voice is terrible. But the rhythm goes, bah, bah, bah. I found something. Yeah. I mean, dude, it's still not identical. Oh, really? Yeah. It's close. Okay. Yeah. For me, that rhythm at seven seconds and the one at 17, I would say in pop, maybe they wouldn't do that that's just i think it's i think it's actually completely ripped off okay yeah i actually do believe that that is ripped off if it's if it's accidental well i'm not saying it's accidental i mean it isn't completely 100 percent, but that's what i'm saying i would agree that it's influenced by very strongly but it's not 100 percent but then listen into the doja cats version where the, you know the guitar's down picking like all the scratch notes in between yeah and then you listen to the doja cat version it's just on a different instrument i would say that that is if that was missing and it was just the rhythm all good but that bit in particular makes me think that it's a carbon copy and they've tried to cover it up by putting it on a different instrument for me it's the lick at the end you know that one at 35 yeah. seconds that lick even though it's not identical it's too close to me for comfort you know like that's like yeah. Okay, but if it's not identical, how can you call it a rip? 
and not just influenced by. With all the other elements that came before, that's what suggests to me it's a rip, you know, like the rhythmic stabs and things like that. If these were separate, I'd say no, it was influenced by. But I, I would, that sounds more like a quotation to me. Do you think? Um, yeah, because it's the homage thing. Because we're talking about the live version of a song with the live players, you know, in pop, the yeah. live players are not often the studio people. So yeah. the live players make this like metal ish arrangement of the song and then tribute Pliny is what it sounds like to me. Like kind of like the way that Mr. Bungle will, would like play one of their songs and then bust into like raining blood for like 45 <laughs> seconds and then play one of their songs and then bust into the cantina theme from Star Wars for 45 seconds and then back into one of the, that's what it sounds like to me is the band busting into something that they really, really love for a little bit. It doesn't sound to me like, oh, we're going to rip this off and uh, no one's going to know. Yeah, it's the fact that they didn't say that to me. And when they were asked, they, he said, no, 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 it's totally not. I've not, I've not done anything. He said, you know, it's it's nothing like that track. To me, if he'd have said, oh, it's heavily influenced by straight away, I think that was how the, the timeline happened. Well, he could have also been acting under instruction. I don't know. I'm just playing yeah. devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> That's normally my job. <laughs> okay, so let me just say, I do hear the influence 100%. In the pop world, man, they have, like, actual shit to lose by doing this sort of thing. It's true. I have a real hard time believing that at her level, people would be doing something as stupid as... There's so many stories of uh, <laughs> of pop artists losing all the money from a song because of something like this. Hey, yeah. people do dumb things, so what do you know? One thing to think about, though, they might have... <laughs> yeah, there's that, but yeah. also that, like, that arrangement might have only been done a few hours before. Yes. That's true, yeah. So then Absolutely. they might have, might have also thought, hmm, what's kind of in this style that we've been listening to recently? Oh, yeah, we can lift that. Also as well, like I think someone mentioned this about Larry, like she would have assumed that it was okayed by, you know, whoever's doing it. Like, because someone had, someone had brought up the question, well, Larry, how did you not know that, you know, how did you not know that that was a ripoff of Pliny's thing and it's one of them? I guess you, you wouldn't assume that an MD would steal, would you? You would assume that it's been okayed if that's the case. And also, maybe she didn't know Pliny's song. Very true as well. Yeah. For example, that song there, right? I obviously know it, but I wouldn't be able to sing it back to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from listening from the times that I have, whereas, you know, now it's been brought up, obviously I can relate to it. But then if Larry's just flying in, going in to do that, she might not have even put two and two together. I've been in this type of situation before where uh, someone that worked for me, who I thought understood the rules of the game, made a, this was years ago, made a, a cover for a product. And I realized that she took copyrighted images and made this cover. It looked really awesome when we figured it out. It was like, if I had not recognized this, I wouldn't have even realized. And I thought that she knew that you can't do stuff like that. 
So stupid me for assuming that. <laughs> it's a complicated topic. The, the other thing is on that note, AL, is that the MD for this band could very well be a 19-year-old dude who plays keyboards, that this is his first major gig. You know, like especially in that kind of pop world, they yep. tend to steal the gospel guys from church when they're very young because they're very, very good at what they do. And like you said there, it could be a case of he's thought that that's okay. And it's only afterwards that he's gone, oh, maybe I wasn't allowed to do that. And it's a case of trying to cover tracks. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's completely innocent. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like, how do you get in the mind of someone? It's like, yeah, guilt, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. That's why at the end of the day, I'm just glad that Pliny got attention. Yeah. That's, yes. That to me is the most important thing is someone from the community of awesome guitar players getting any attention from the mainstream in any way, shape or form. That's great. Yeah. 100%. So like, I don't think it's a bad thing, whether it's 100% innocent or just a fucked up coincidence or hundred percent lifted. I mean, I don't think it's hundred percent lifted either, but, uh, but it's close. No matter what, it's close. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, really close. <laughs> <laughs> the, is it less than 60% unrecognizable? That is the, the current uh, criteria, isn't it? For copyright of music. And I would say that it falls into above 60%, which means it's a ripoff. Yeah. So how do you determine the 60%? Is there an equation? If it's halfway, <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to recognize it, would you? I don't know. So how does the equation work? I don't know. 60%. <laughs> okay, so how do you get to that 60%? How do you gauge? I don't know. There's probably like, you know, something or other. You know that when uh, I watched a series actually the other day on, on uh, I want to say it was Netflix, and it was about a forger. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. One of the most famous ones that used to forge paintings. And I watched um, a machine they put it through to really analyze the images, you know, so you can see like the brush strokes and stuff like that. For this particular episode, they got one of some guy that had been in prison for doing forgery to do a copy of a Lowry painting. And they were able to determine based on, you know, what they'd seen from the actual artist, that it was actually a fake. Now, obviously having something like that would be great for doing this thing with music, but obviously you can't do that because there's not really anything that you can analyze through music, is there, to see if you've ripped it off? Yeah, it's it's hard to do. (laughs) It's very, very hard to do. They were able to determine, like, you know, the colors that were used and the brush strokes and stuff like that because obviously, you know, we as musicians, like I was saying, we have our isms that we go to, like phrases and stuff yeah. like that. And I would say a majority of those phrases in that guitar solo sounded like Pliny. I have definitely been in another situation that I can't go into too much detail in where uh, someone I know straight up ripped something off and tried to pass it off as his own. And uh, I discovered it and uh, had an aneurysm. <laughs> so I have been in that scenario where someone does do that. So I'm not going to put it past people because I've experienced it. I have something to add to that. I had very, very recently um, a guy who is absolutely huge on Instagram. I got tagged in a video with, where the comment was just like, um, so you're really going to play Jack Garden solo note for note and not say anything. And I was like, 
ah, this has piqued my attention, you know, what's this kind of thing? And there's a guy claiming that he's improvising over a track that has had like 120,000 views. He had people like Bootsy Collins commenting on it saying, oh my God, this solo is incredible, things like this. It was actually note for note, a video which I'd posted back in 2013 over the same track, literally note for note, um, improvised that he'd just lifted and used as his own. And the guy was actually selling transcriptions of it. And it had on it, you know, solo arranged by this dude, blah, 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 blah. And when I realised that he was making money from it, that was when I was like, right, okay, maybe I should, you know, check what's going on here. And um, he straight away admitted that he just transcribed the whole thing and thought that I would never see it because our paths would never cross. You know? Wow, he admitted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He took it all down. And So how much, how, much, how much money did he send you? Well, this is where it's funny, is that it made me realise, maybe that's a whole different topic, but Instagram numbers mean absolutely nothing in terms of what sales are actually going on because he gave me the records for his... Uh, I don't know whether I should say this, but he gave me the records for his site and... Let's just say that like a hundred dollars was a lot of money in a month. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, as in like no one had bought it. Like nothing. You know, it makes you kind of question the whole having hundreds of thousands of Instagram subscribers or followers or whatever means just absolutely nothing in reality. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Actually, that's a great point. By the way, I think uh, there's a reason for why those are called vanity metrics. So, you know, like in business, we look at metrics and then there's vanity metrics and the vanity metrics are the things that make you feel cool. Yes. But that don't actually impact the bottom line. And uh, we find that a lot of people tend to worry about the vanity metrics too much. Now the vanity metrics matter to other people. So, you know, like a band getting signed or something, the vanity metrics matter to the label. So I'm not saying that they don't matter, but they're called vanity metrics for a reason. Reason being that there's very little correlation to the to the bottom line. And that's a perfect example that you just gave yeah. of that. 100%. Yeah, people get a little carried away with the vanity metrics too, thinking that they're way more important than they actually are. I've noticed as well, like, a worrying trend seems to be with, like, pupils that come to me, where what, this always upsets me, but, like, their one of their goals is always, I want to build the following. And I'm always like, why? You know, like, wh why do you want to build your following? Do you have a band? Do you have music? Do you have, you know, what is it that you want to actually do with that? And nine times out of ten, it's just, well, I want my numbers to grow. And that's like, a, especially with younger students, that's one thing which kind of worries me a little bit, you know, these days where I think, man, focus on guitar and music and that will come. Don't worry too much about the numbers for now, especially if you're like a 16-year-old kid and that doesn't really matter now. That's not going to pay your bills and things like that. You know? No, it's like, it's better to have a small core of people rather than that actually care exactly actually care yeah there's a quote isn't there like you only need like a thousand dedicated fans a thousand true fans yeah to be a millionaire or something like that that's like the yeah, i'm probably totally misquoting that but that's the idea i think isn't it i am like yeah the i i mean you know the number is 
obviously subjective, but uh, and the context matters. But the idea being that you should be going for quality fans and customers, like people who actually give a shit, people who would be sad if you disappeared, and people who feel like they want to part ways with money in their wallet for the thing you do. And you don't need that many of them to have something viable. You don't need hundreds of thousands of them. And just because you have hundreds of thousands, that doesn't mean that they really care about you or are willing to spend money on you. Like you can go on, you know, and Facebook is a perfect example with groups, Facebook groups that uh, are not tied to a business like you don't have like with URM or Riff Hardware. You can only get into our group by being a paid subscriber, and there's very strict rules and moderated. And these groups are super high engagement. They're great. They're not huge, but they're great, and they they drive a lot of revenue for us. Now you go into these groups on Facebook that are uncontrolled. Anyone can get in, and they have like one or two hundred thousand members. And um, I remember. Uh, I went to this thing that Facebook ran a few years ago where they invited a bunch of admins from groups that are doing real well. And, uh, and so for some reason they invited me, which was weird because there were a bunch of other people there who had groups with like a hundred thousand people or 200,000 people, crazy amounts. Their groups made no money at all. It was crazy. We have a fraction of that. And so I just think it's about, I think it's about having the right 100%. But you, you touched on that before and the quality product. I think that's the oh, other well, thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Product market <laughs> fit. The right quality product for the right crowd at the right price is At the right everything. time. At the right yes, time. Yes, that's very Is true. everything. Yeah. It's cool to get lots of views on social media, but I mean, you can film yourself falling off a ladder and get 10 million views. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It do- doesn't mean that you're doing something good. It's funny that like some people's end goal is to go viral and then not really knowing what to do with that. But there is one example that I can think of where it probably went quite well. It was that girl. Um, what was her name again? She was on that show and then she ended up having a music career. Oh, the Catch Me Outside girl? That's the one. Yes. So... I mean, yeah, I think most people just don't know what to do in the moment if they do if that does happen. And then you end up with like groups with a hundred thousand in where they don't get any engagement, or you get a guitar player with two hundred thousand that doesn't necessarily know how to nurture the two hundred thousand to get them on to part with their money. Mm-hmm. Um maybe the approach has been wrong. Definitely the approach has been wrong. Trying to go viral with something, um, unless that's your job. You know, there's some sites or some pages who do this for a living and are very good at it. Mm-hmm. Like they have figured it out. I'm not talking about them, but people trying to go viral as how that's as how to become successful. I have nothing, no following. I'm going to try and make a viral video. And that is where my career is going to come from. That's a very uh, to me, that's kind of like the singer that thinks they're going to win American Idol in order for a career or the entrepreneur that thinks that uh, going on Shark Tank is the uh, is how they're going to make shit happen. It's just super, super unlikely and super unrealistic and shows that there's not much of an actual plan behind anything. It's like buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with music. Music is hard enough 
without adding unrealistic bullshit to it. Just the, just being realistic and, uh, and intentional, um, and organized with music, it's still hard enough. So, uh, I make it harder by going for dumb shit like virality. I mean, it's great. If you can have a viral video attached to an already functional music career and can make the best of it, then fucking awesome. That's great. But I think virality oftentimes is, uh, is one of those things we can't predict. So it's quite often by mistake, isn't it? That these, yes. <laughs> that it happens. It's just pure luck. Yeah. It's just great timing and the something that for some reason the audience was ready for at that point in time. You can't ever predict that. So that said, I think it's a good place to, uh, to end the podcast. Jack, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, no, thank you very much for having me on, guys. And thank you for, hopefully you can understand my accent. <laughs> That's the main thing. <laughs> Sorry, I, I kind of. Was, I think it was fine. <laughs> I think that maybe I just overestimated what um, Al could understand. Underestimated. Underestimated, <laughs> yeah. not overestimated. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to find someone from Glasgow next for you, Al. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been there before. I, I, oh, you might be fine. all right then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm okay with uh, different types of uh, English accents. Try me. It's surprising, actually. I uh, like usually when I'm over in the States, like, Everyone thinks I'm Scottish or Australian. Like, <laughs> really? Yeah, and the Scouse accent. And and when I tell them that I'm from Liverpool, it's often, oh, where's that? And then you say the Beatles, and then it's, oh, yeah, John Lennon. Do you know John Lennon or Paul McCartney? <laughs> as, if, <laughs> as if, like, they're just... I, I, I love playing that game with Americans where it's like, yeah, man, it's my mum's cousin on his hair side of the family is John Lennon's <laughs> auntie. And, you, know, like, <laughs> you guys all know each other, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Liverpool accent doesn't sound anything like an Australian accent. Exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like anything. Yeah. Else. I, I mean, Irish. I can kind of get because, like, of the port, and you know, everyone came over from Ireland, and everyone in Liverpool. If you just go back a couple of generations, has Irish there. But that's the closest I would think. Not like <laughs> Scottish is totally. It's a, a totally different like a pace to the phrasing, isn't it? And Australian yeah. is just like a totally different world altogether. Like. Well, I'm glad that you guys were able to understand each other. Yeah, I think we were, I think we were just fine. All right, man. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you, guys. And thanks for listening in. Well, he's awesome. I checked out his stuff before this episode. Um, I was unfamiliar with him until you told me about him. But, man, he's killer. He's got quite a few tricks up his sleeve, especially as such a young guitar player as well. I spent uh, a couple of days with him in Germany while we could still travel. And this was going back to what, August last year now? Yeah, he was at the YouTube event, Henning Paulie's 42 Gear Street. And I got to see him play in person. It's just wild how accomplished he is at voicing what he's hearing. He's amazing. Yeah, he's great. And the thing that, that he talked about where he has to make his practice very regimented, like 20 minutes of this, for instance, 20 minutes of the thing he's working on and that that actually works for him. That reminds me a lot of the schedule. Um, the fact that we do have it set up to where people can do 20 minutes or 
40 minutes or an hour, like whatever they do have time for. I think that what really matters though, is the level of focus. Yes. And I, I mean, you can see it on the, on the group when people are posting, it doesn't matter how much time they're spending on it, whether it's 20, 40 or 60 minutes. If the focus is there and they're actually sticking to it, you see very big progressions happening in a very short period of time. Yeah. Tell us about what the schedule is for people who don't know. We take a couple of exercises from our downpicking gym uh, that focuses on certain aspects that can be hammer-ons, pull-offs, slides, um, string skipping, stuff like that. And basically increasing or decreasing the speed depending on what the focus is during the workout. And, you know, going slow is just as hard as going fast. A couple of those exercises done in one-minute bursts, and um, also some workout exercises and also learning riffs from other artists as well as obviously riffs from Monuments and Flux Conduct. And it's basically just trying to improve on certain aspects of the actual coordination of the left and right hand along while increasing speed and stamina and endurance. And the results we see are crazy. Crazy. It's amazing what you can do by playing and doing all this stuff to a metronome. And believe it or not, even in 2021, there's still guitar players that don't play to a metronome. I have a hard time believing that everybody play to a metronome and go to riffhard.com and actually get better. That's my sales pitch. (laughs) Actually get better. (laughs) Yeah. And you will get better. Yeah, you will. All right, John, it's been a pleasure. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.